Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Gift of Grace on the Word 1220. This is Phil Giuliani here again on another awesome Sunday night. And this is the Gift of Grace, where we read and teach God's Word, and we proclaim the kingdom and salvation in Jesus the Messiah. So I hope you've had an awesome week. We are now in the season of Lent, and many churches commemorate this. It's a time, of course, that begins on Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, and goes until Easter, Resurrection Day. And it's been an ancient practice in the church. I'm not sure exactly when it started, but very ancient practice of fasting and praying and doing penance and giving alms and in preparation for the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And if you go to a church that commemorates Lent, then you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, um, it's actually a very good practice to be aware of this as we approach the time when our salvation was secured, so to speak, if we take advantage of that and apply it to ourselves, it wasn't secured for everyone. There seems to be more and more thinking about universalism in the church, which clearly is not scriptural in any sense of the word, but it's a time where you can kind of reflect on your life and think about the cross and think about suffering and think about the price that was paid for your sin. And it's a time to build up spiritual discipline. And I think in that sense, it's good. Um, fasting is a good practice. It, as Paul talks about in Romans a lot, a lot in Romans, he talks about how the spirit and the flesh are always in conflict with each other and how you have to live in the spirit and not live in the flesh, and you have to deny the flesh what it wants. And So it's a good time to think about those things. It's easy to talk about them and quite a bit more difficult to actually do them. <laughs> but since we're in this time, and we're going to leave aside, oh, customs and traditions and I'm not sure what all else you can call it, but there, there are um, the church is really not different from uh, the Old Testament, the Tanakh. In, in Torah, God describes a whole series of seasons that go on during the course of a year, and that the people live their lives according to these seasons, and of course. The church, through history, has also set up seasons, and Lent is one of those seasons, and it kind of brings an order to to your life. How you commemorate it, it should be up to you, and not based on traditions and customs and how somebody tells you to do it, because after all, and I always tell my friends, and they're tired of hearing me say this, that 
it's always Lent for me, and it's always Easter for me, and it's always Good Friday for me, and it's always Christmas for me. Because I try to think about all those things every day, multiple times per day. I don't just think about it during this particular time. But it is good to have a rhythm to your physical life as well as your spiritual life. Even our physical bodies are regulated by rhythms, especially the sun and the seasons and so forth. So since we're in this season, a good kickoff for this <laughs> is going to be the prophet Joel, chapter 2. And the prophet Joel is, he's one of the minor prophets, he's one of the twelve, as the um, Jews call him, he's in the scroll of the twelve. And it's interesting that he talks about repentance and reflection and change in your life, as we're going to talk about today. And I don't know, it may go into next week too, I don't know. <laughs> But, and it's also a good topic around the time of Pentecost because he always talks, he also talks about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. We'll talk more about that as we get closer to Pentecost. I'm going to talk about it now, but we're going to start in Joel chapter 2 today. And. Joel is a great book. It's three chapters. It's um, very powerful in the sense that it talks about sin and it talks about judgment. And it talks about preparing for judgment. And it, it even talks about um, how the nations are going to be judged that come against Jerusalem. But that's going to be on a different day, on a different program. Because tonight we're going to start in chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 11. And I'm just going to read a few verses here before we get into a discussion. So Joel 2, 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, 
and pity his people. Now, the context of this, of course, um, if you study the Old Testament, well, study the whole scripture, context is very important. The context of this is warning, warning the people that God is going to let an enemy come and it's going to be a horrible day. There's going to be judgment on the land, mostly because of idolatry, because of disobedience, because of the breaking of the covenant that went on continually, as it does with us as well. (laughs) But it points out at the beginning of that passage that I read that God is the commander. He's in charge of it all, and he executes his word. And this day that's called the day of the Lord is terrible, and no one can escape it. No one can escape it. And so what we have here is a warning that things have to change. God is angry with the rebellion. He's going to overlook it for a certain amount of time. And then the day of the Lord is going to come. And in many places in the Old Testament, it's called the great and terrible day. Sometimes it's called a dark day. It's always called a terrible day. Because judgment isn't always good. Sometimes a little bit of judgment is good for getting people kind of back on track. A national judgment, a world judgment is not good. We've seen judgments come down in our recent history, starting with 9-11 and all the things that are going on through the world now and right down to changes in weather and atmospheric rivers and all this. But we're not going to talk about that. I'm always reminded of when Paul talks in Athens to the philosophers on the Areopagus, and he's telling them about the God that they don't know. And he says to them, the God who made everything and made everybody He sees what you're doing here, and he's going to overlook it for a certain amount of time. But then he's going to be through overlooking it, and he's appointed a day when the world is going to be judged. He's appointed a day. There's a day when the earth is going to be judged. There's a day when you're going to be judged. So this this is a recurring theme, of course, in the Scripture, Modern preachers and priests and teachers would like to have you think, oh, come on now, God is love and we don't judge anything and everything is good just the way it is. That's not the message of Scripture. So he enforces his word. So what's the solution to this problem? Everyone is in rebellion. It's not just a certain group of people. In our time, it's not just one country. It's not just one area of the world. But what is the solution to this? He says, repent. In other words, you have to acknowledge that you've done wrong. You have to ask for forgiveness for what you've done wrong. 
You have to admit to yourself that this is wrong what I'm doing, that this does, this is not the will of God what I'm doing. I'm violating his covenant. He is all holy and all just. And so there will be consequences for violating the covenant. There will be consequences for not following his laws. There will be consequences for setting ourselves up as the ultimate arbiter of everything, the source of truth, the source of morality, because none of us are any of those things. And so he says, you have to repent. You have to turn away with your heart. You have to understand this deep down inside. You know, of course, I'm sure that ancient people thought the heart was the center of all human emotion. And we, we know that. We just had Valentine's Day. The symbol of it is heart. We say, I gave my heart to that person. I put my whole heart into this. We, we still use that terminology, although we know that a heart is basically just two water pumps side by side and isn't the, really the seat of anything. <laughs> but it's come into the language. But you have to turn with your whole heart. In other words, deep down inside. It can't be an insincere or a superficial. You can show up on Ash Wednesday and get ashes, and you can say the prayers, and you can walk out. But it says, no, you should be fasting, you should be weeping, you should be mourning. It can't be insincere. It can't be superficial. It can't be an external show. Jesus talked a lot about external shows. And he generally used it for the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But, of course, it applies to individual people as well. So he says, you people, because of the law and because of your traditions, you rend your garment when a sin occurs. But what he's saying is you rend your heart, not your garment. Rending your garment is an outward sign. It has nothing to do with what your inward sign is. And, and I think the best example of that, of course, is at Jesus' trial, the morning, early morning of the day we call Good Friday, where um, they accuse him of blasphemy, and the chief priest tears his robe, because when you hear someone blaspheme, you tear your clothes as a sign of mourning, and then you get away from that person. But here was a man, the chief priest, high priest, here was a man who went through the motions of following the law and the tradition, heard what he considered blasphemy, ripped his garment but his heart was not rent. His heart was not ripped. He was making a superficial external show of it. And this is very easy to do in church. It's very easy to do in any church wherever you go. Because no one can read your heart. You can look very sincere. Judas was an apostle. He spent years with the ultimate master. 
He spent years with all those other men who were the other 11. He heard the prayers. He saw the miracles. He heard all the discussions. And he betrayed the Messiah. The chief priest tore his clothes, but his heart was not torn. Joel says, rend your heart, not your garments. Because when you rip your heart open, when you understand at a very deep level, you're much more likely to turn to him. And he points out that there'll be grace and mercy there. There'll be grace and mercy. And we can appeal to that grace and mercy. We know that Jesus died for that. He died for the fact that you're a frail, hopeless, condemned sinner who's not capable of doing very much that's right. He understands that. And so the prophet Joel's implying, not implying, he's saying, if you rend your heart, you turn to him and you appeal to that grace and mercy rather than worrying about the wrath that's going to come. There's a certain healthy concern about the wrath, but you appeal to the grace and mercy. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why we're in a new covenant. This is not like the old covenant. And if you don't, if you've ever read Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, I don't know what to tell you, but you can go read it as soon as we're done here. It won't take you very long and you'll be blown away. So we appeal to that grace and mercy from deep inside of us. Not a superficial, yeah, I said the prayer. Yeah, I put the ashes on my head. You know, ashes were always a sign of mourning. Jacob, when he thought that um, Joseph was dead, you know, they put a- he put ashes on his head, threw dirt on his head. This was a sign of mourning. The people in Nineveh put ashes on their head and even on the animals. And they repented all through the Tanakh, the Old Testament. There's evidence of ashes and dirt representing mourning. But if we rent, rent our hearts and not our garments, as he says, and if we turn toward that grace and mercy, he's very likely to relent and leave a blessing. And if you do it in the proper way, in a sincere way, he will relent and you will have a blessing. Because everything that you are guilty of breaking in the law, in the covenants, Jesus has already paid the price for. So he's more than willing to give you the grace and mercy. And he goes on to say, you blow the trumpet. In other words, the trumpet was a sign. We're never going to get through the rest of this today, but that's okay. The trumpet was a sign, if you've studied Torah, of calling people together. It was a sign that something was happening. Every time there was a change in some situation, the trumpets were blown. When there was a new moon, the trumpets were blown that said to the people, the new month is here. 
when an enemy was coming, the trumpets were blown. Different notes, but a warning. The shofars, which trumpet usually refers to shofar, of course, the ram's horn, but it can also come from other animals that have horns, but <laughs> we won't get into that. I would suggest you go to my YouTube channel called The Torah Class, and you can learn about shofars very, um, very importantly, very well described in, in Torah, because the shofar is such an important thing. But these, these trumpets, these shofars were blown at various times when something important was happening. So he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. In other words, throughout the whole people, throughout all the people that are the covenant people, all the people that are involved in this way of life, they have to hear the trumpet. They have to be called to action. They have to be called to an important thing that they have to do. When the Feast of Rosh Hashanah comes around in the fall, in September, it's called the Feast of Trumpets because the shofar blasts are to wake you up from your spiritual sleep. And right now, most of the world, including the churches, are in a spiritual sleep because they're just happily trying to be like the world so they don't get into any rough waters or hurt anyone's feelings or, you know, just generally look like they're troublemakers. They've kind of gone into a nice little sleep. We can have a nice little service on Sunday morning, and then we can go about our business. The shofar wakes you up from that. And the old Hebrew prayer is, you know, awaken, O sleeper, and look what's going on around you. Then he calls for a fast and an assembly. And they don't waste any time. It implies don't waste any time. You're going to blow the trumpet. You're going to get people together. You're going to assemble the people. You're going to start a fast. You're going to start prayer time, so to speak. You're going to start praying for repentance, and you're going to repent and pray for forgiveness and grace and mercy. You prepare the people. And it mentions all these different people, elders, Young people, newlyweds, children, babies. Everyone has to be involved across all age groups, across all economic levels, across all different levels of whatever their life is, men and women, old and young, even babies. Even babies that are still nursing have to be involved because there is nothing more important than this. There is nothing more important, and we know this getting back to the good news of the gospel. We know this because there is nothing more important than salvation. There is nothing more important than repentance, turning to Jesus for forgiveness, having your sins forgiven by what he did on the cross. 
going to the scriptures that say your sin isn't even remembered anymore after it's forgiven, that he takes away even the shame and the guilt associated with your sin, not just the sin itself. These are very powerful scriptures that are throughout Old Testament and New Testament. So there is nothing more important than this. So in the, it applies to everyone. Because in our day, it's, I don't want to say it's worse because it's always been bad, but you have so many people that say, yeah, 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 yeah. I really don't believe any of that stuff. And I think God's going to be nice because I'm nice. I'm a good person. And I'm just going to hope for the best. And I think everything will be okay. And, well, there's way more people worse than I am. But Joel says, no, you get everyone together. You blow the trumpet. You fast. You call everyone together. And I'm going to end it there because I, I really want to spend, I thought I was going to do all of this, but obviously that's not happening because I already hear the music playing. But next week we'll talk about how the priests are supposed to be weeping because that's my favorite part. But anyway, thanks for tuning in and join us again next week where we'll read and teach God's Word and proclaim the kingdom and salvation in Jesus the Messiah. Have an awesome week. <laughs>